Verse 21 is fascinating. It starts saying, after saying these things, and so if you were here last week, you have an intimate knowledge of what these things are as we went through verses 1 through 20 last week. And again, it's Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He's serving them. He's taking the, the task of a servant and leading his disciples by serving them. He's building a community of love by loving them, by serving them, by knowing them, by eating with them, by being with them in this intimate setting. And so he has said these things. He has taught them. He has both taught them verbally with words, and he has modeled for them what to do. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So he's modeled and taught them how to build community. And then in verse 21, it says he's troubled in spirit. Jesus is God and man. He's fully God, but he shows us in human form that God himself has emotions, that God himself is a relational being. Jesus is troubled in spirit because relational connection with a disciple that he loves is about to be broken. So that's important for us to keep in mind as we talk about community, as we look at John 13 and see how Jesus shapes community, how he builds community, how he transforms community, we need to see the emotion in Jesus here that he loves people, even those who betray him, even those who would run away from his community, and he's troubled in spirit. Jesus' trouble here is about relational fracture among his people. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so this morning, we're going to look at this idea that Jesus' community is clarified over time by those who receive his love, reflect his love, and remain with his people. Jesus' community, and we could just say the church, right? Um, Sometimes the church comes with more baggage. But when I talk about Jesus' community, I mean the church of Jesus Christ. That is Jesus' community. And so we're going to see, and we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to see it in the text, and we're going to talk about how community is clarified over time, right, by those who continue to, they're able to receive the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ. They're, They're able and willing to reflect his love, like Jesus had told us in John 13, verses 13 through 17, after he washes the disciples' feet. He says, you should do likewise. A characteristic of those who walk with Jesus, of Jesus's true church, his true community, is those who are willing to serve, to reflect his love by serving others. And then those who remain with his people, those who stay in his community, And so we're going to talk some about that as we go this morning, this idea of being clarified, right? It's kind of knowing, like, who's in and who's out. And that's tricky for us to know. And sometimes churches and religious, like, thinking about the church in a religious way rather than a relational way can get us pretty wonky on this, right? Some of you have experienced this. Like, how do you clarify who's in or who's out? Well, like, keeping a record of baptisms, um, trying to determine who's allowed to take communion or not. Church membership. Now, at Park Community Church, church membership isn't to determine who's inside and outside the, the, the family of God. It's just for us to know who's a part of this particular localized community that our elders and staff care for and shepherd. 
But this gets pretty weird, right? Some of you know this. You've probably experienced it. One of my first experiences was when I was a kid, my great uncle passed away, and I went to his funeral at a Catholic service, and I hadn't had a whole lot of interaction with the Catholic expression of faith. And so they go through the go through the funeral service and then there's a time to take communion and you know growing up in like an evangelical church we're just like whatever anyone can take communion and so I hop out of the aisle and I walk up front and I notice as I get closer that everyone's holding their hands a certain way and I'm like what are they doing I'm trying to figure out how to hold my hands and I get up front and it becomes apparent to me that I'm not allowed to take communion there there's this there's this circle around their community that you had to know in order to be able to take communion. And, and, and I was on the outside. I wasn't on the inside. I didn't know what to do. Some of you have probably been in that situation. Some of you probably coming to park. This is newer for you, how we take communion. You're like, I don't, am, I, am I allowed to? Am I not? I'm sitting on the, on the other side, or I'm sitting on the inside of the aisle, and these people want to get by, and I don't know if I should get up and come forward, right? There's some awkwardness that is created around religious institution and community. And so what I want to do this morning is look at this interaction. I want to specifically consider some of what's going on with Judas, the other disciples, and then we're going to talk about communion some and how communion can help to build and shape community. And we'll get a little bit specific on why we do communion the way that we do it here at Park Community Church. Now, this idea here is for us to understand what does it really look like for us to remain with Jesus what separates true disciples from false disciples? And are we even allowed to know? Is it our job to judge and determine who's in and who's out? And so we'll talk about some of that as we go. Let's start by looking at Judas. And so this morning I want to do a little bit of a character study on Judas. In order to do that, let's go to John chapter 6. As in John chapter 13, there's, there's, this, there's this clarifying moment for Jesus' community, right? Right? 11 of the disciples stay with him. One of the disciples, Judas, leaves. But before John chapter 13, there's three years of relationship that has been built. Judas is among the disciples. The other disciples, as we just read in John 13, they aren't clear on who the betrayer is. They don't know. Judas is just like them. And you and I know that there's people in our lives, people in our churches, people in our spheres of influence, and we're like, I don't they left the faith. They left the church. They deconstructed. Now, are they reconstructing? Am I deconstructing? Am I reconstructing? Like, who's in, who's out? And so we, I, I want to see some of what's happening here in Judas to help us understand if we want to keep walking with Jesus and be clarified as among his community, what that looks like, and then to not to identify the Judases in our midst, right? That's not the point of this sermon. It's not the point of the text to try and figure out who's Judas among you. The point is to say, how do I persevere like the other disciples? And so we see some, some characteristics in Judas to, to be aware of, maybe in our own life, if we desire to continue walking with Jesus. So John chapter 6, 16 through, uh, 66 through 71. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That word disciple means follower, apprentice. So there were many people who were following Jesus, walking with Jesus, hearing Jesus' preaching in Jesus' midst, who at this point, after Jesus had just given a hard word about him being eternal life and him being the bread of life, it was a confusing teaching, and many people walked. So in any church setting, in any religious environment, there's probably people who, well, none of us fully understand Jesus perfectly. 
right? But there's these moments in any religious environment where certain people are going to bail. They're going to walk because the teachings of Jesus are hard. The ethics of Jesus are hard. Some of it's just confusing. Do we really want to surrender our own control in life? So we see that happening here. After a hard teaching, many of the disciples, previously everyone thought that they were the disciples, right? It's like, hey, we're all of Jesus's people. In this moment, many of them turn back and no longer walk with Jesus. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Jesus isn't like trapping them. He's giving them a level of free choice. Do you, want, do you want to come with me? Do you want to walk with me? I've invited you to be my disciple. I've invited you to be my apprentice and my follower. Do you, do you want to continue to go down this path? He gives them an option. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're going to come back and, and talk about that phrase with Peter. Beautiful phrase. Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's a lot of words out there. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of religions. There's a lot of worldviews. Peter here is seeing that Jesus alone is the one who has words of eternal life. And he says, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. An incredible creed and confession in the scriptures. But verse 70 and 71 show something about Judas. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I think this is really interesting that Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil, one of you is a deceiver, one of you will be influenced by the powers of darkness, and you will leave the community. He won't ultimately receive my love, he won't ultimately reflect my love, and he won't remain with the people of God. And sometimes people get really stuck here, like, you know, what, what's up with Judas? Was he predestination and free will? These are conversations that are important and fun to have, but they divide many churches and Christians. And here's what I want you to know, church family, is that I think we need to work towards embracing some of the tension here, embracing some of the mystery of God's sovereignty and human free will rather than trying to solve it. Right here in this text, it says, did I not choose the 12? People who have a very narrow lens towards predestination, anytime they see the word choosing, they're, they're trying to think, well, God chooses, God chooses, God chooses. And here, God elected, he chose Judas. And yet Judas fell away. He didn't remain. He was a betrayer. And was that God's intent from the foundation of the world? You know, that's a big conversation to have. But I want us to see here, just there's some tension. That Jesus chooses Judas, and Judas yet rejects him. So is it election? Is it free will? How, how does election and rejection go together? And again, I just want us to embrace the mystery. Because there's many, many, many texts that make it, that it's just nuance and there's tensions here. And I think beauty is in the tension. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, chose Judas to be on his team, to be a disciple. And he walked with Judas and he loved Judas and he ate with Judas and Judas was a part of the community. 
and Judas chose to reject Jesus. And so was it God's ordaining that he rejected or his own choosing that he rejected? There's some mystery there. Let's keep going. Let's see some more about Judas. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. And we're going to see some character here. So there's the whole, like, sovereignty of God and, and human will, human freedom question. And that other passage here, in this passage, we see some character of Judas. So John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. In context here, uh, Mary has just anointed Jesus' feet with extremely expensive oil in an act of worship. Pick it up in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who is about to betray him, and remember, John is writing this in hindsight. So John knows in the future that Judas is the betrayer, and he writes this letter. He doesn't know in the moment. Like, as Mary anoints Jesus' feet with her hair and the ointment, and then when Judas makes his comment, John doesn't know. Judas is, in all likelihood, a good, generous guy who wants to care for the poor. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That sounds really altruistic, doesn't it? What a waste of worship. This, this ointment poured out on Jesus' feet, just wasted when we could have sold it and given this money away to people who actually need it. That sounds like humanitarianism at its finest. That actually sounds like a Jesus ethic of loving the poor and broken and needy at its core. And that's a whole different sermon to talk about, you know, Mary wasting this money on worship versus using it to bless the poor. That's a different sermon. But the point here is that Judas comes across to the other disciples as holy and pious and, and, and self-sacrificial. But look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We're seeing some character of Judas that was on display before John 13 when he ultimately leaves the community. And the community didn't know this ahead of time. Judas was embezzling funds from the disciples and Jesus in their midst, and they didn't know it until later, until hindsight, until G Judas betrayed Jesus. Just an interesting note, we're getting to see the person and the character of Judas. Now flip back to John 13. Verse 2, which we didn't read this morning, but we looked at last week and skipped over it, and I said I would come back to it. It says, during supper, remember, they're, they're at the feast of Passover. They're having the last supper together. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. So is it Judas's choice to betray Jesus? Was it the devil's? Did God ordain the betrayal? These are big questions. They're philosophical questions. They have some theological undertones and underpinnings. But based off of this passage, I just want you to see that the devil deceived Judas and put it in his heart to reject God. Based off of this passage and this verse alone, God didn't put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. The devil put it into Judas's heart to betray, to betray Jesus. And that might be important for some of you who are wrestling with like, well, does, does... and there are verses that say God hardens people's hearts. But it's kind of this, as we look at scripture, it's kind of this working together of, and we're going to see this in Judas as we kind of 
finish our, our discovery of Judas here and our look at Judas, it's kind of like a both and. It's like his heart is hardened. You can kind of see his character, his corruption already there. Like he, he's stealing from the disciples. He's deceiving other people. He's, gotten this, he's got this rotten character that Jesus somehow, for some reason, hasn't transformed. Like he's kind of closed off to the person of Jesus, to the ethic of Jesus, to the love of Jesus. And it's fascinating in this scene that he's sitting there among the disciples and he's allowing Jesus to wash his feet and he's dining with Jesus and the disciples, but he's doing it in a different way. So again, in any religious environment, in any small group, in any church gathering, there might be people who are participating in doing the very things that, that anyone else is doing, but there's a certain way to be with Jesus and his people, which is life-giving and which over time proves the fruit of salvation. And then there's another way of doing it, which over time proves that we're not saved, that we're not a part of the community. The community is clarified. And again, it's over time. And we'll talk about this as we go. Look at verse 10 and 11. So Jesus has just started washing the disciples' feet. If you remember from last week, Peter was like kind of resistant to this. He's like, no, Jesus, you shouldn't wash my feet. You're master, you're holy, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says to him in verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. So Jesus here is symbolically washing the disciples' feet, saying you need to be bathed by me. And if you're bathed by me, you are, you are spiritually clean. But there's one among you who's not clean. Even though Jesus has washed Judas's feet, so he's done the same act for all of the disciples. He's washed their feet. But Judas somehow, even though he received Jesus' action towards him, he received it in a, in a different way. He didn't fully let Jesus in. He didn't fully let Jesus clean him. Verse 11, he says, For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. So there's a way when we come together, like some people receive communion as like truly, genuinely receiving it. As a reminder of Jesus' work in our place on our behalf, some of us truly, genuinely receive God's grace. We receive God's love. We don't try to earn his love, and now I think all of us kind of do at some points, right? We slip into moralism, we slip into legalism. But there's this a true disciple over time will be known by the ability to consistently receive Jesus on Jesus' terms, not our own. And Judas here is unwilling to do that. So he lets Jesus wash his feet, but, right, like the physical act, but internally he's closed off to Jesus. Internally he wants things his own way. Internally he's resisting surrender to Jesus. Look at verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. And again, he said, if, 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 you wanna, if you wanna be my disciples, you should do what I do, right? So there's this idea of receiving his love. And then there's this idea of reflecting his love in verses 13 through 17. He says, as I do, you should do also. So a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus over time is clarified by their willingness and ability to serve others but verse 18, he says, I am not speaking of all of you. There's one among you who will not reflect my love. There's one among you who will not serve others. 
It says, I know, who, I know whom I have chosen. Again, there's that idea of choosing. He's saying, I chose all 12 of you, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And this is a quote from Psalm 41, verses 8 through 10. You can go back and read that some other time. We don't have time to go there and kind of go deep into that right now. But this is just a quote. It's, it's here to clarify, to help the disciples understand that Jesus is actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. There's this Old Testament prophecy that, that there will be this deceiver among us and he will lift his heel against me as he eats my bread. Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. There's this sign here, this prophetic reminder that I am the promised Messiah and I am coming to set you free from your sin. Then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one, the, the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Again, there's this idea that we have to be receptive, that the genuine, true community of God will show itself over time as those who are continually receptive to God's message. I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, and, and there's a couple different ways you can interpret this. Different commentators uh, have it differently. I, I think it's kind of a both and. I think he's saying, whoever receives my messengers, so my disciples, my preachers, my missionaries, whoever receives the message that they come with, receives the gospel, they receive me, they receive new life. Whoever receives the one that I send, some people say it's a, it's a point or two in the next chapter when he's going to talk about sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I think that's also right. Whoever receives the Holy Spirit, whoever receives God's love, receives his Holy Spirit and reflects his love and remains with his people, they prove to be my disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And, and Judas, we see clearly, just doesn't. He doesn't receive God's love in the way that the other disciples did. He, he didn't receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't reflect God's love, and he doesn't remain with the community. He, he leaves the community. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say, one of you will betray me. So he knows what's going on. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Judas looked like just all the other disciples. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, Jesus loved all the disciples. We were already told that in verse 1 of chapter 13. Most people believe that John, the writer of this gospel, puts that in there to just like, that's the humanity of the gospel writers, right? The one that he loved. It's like, yeah, guys, he loves me. And they're like, yeah, he loves us too, equally. Yeah, okay, fine. The one whom Jesus loved was, uh, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered him, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This sign of dipping a morsel of bread and giving it to someone else is a gesture, it's a sign of deep and intimate friendship in the first century. 
Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him. And Jesus' last attempt, and, and again, I don't know, does Jesus actually think he can convince Judas to change his mind? This is the whole redemption scene, how it plays out. Like, he has to be betrayed. He has to go to the cross. This all has to happen. This is all fulfilling prophecy. But relationally, think about this relationally. Like, take your doctrinal hat. Uh, I don't want to say take it off for a minute. But, but add to your doctrinal hat relational context. Jesus, in this moment, his last act toward Judas is to give him a sign of deep and intimate friendship and connection. It's a supreme act of love. This is how Jesus operates with a betrayer in his midst. And he's telling them, the one who I do this to, he's the one who's going to betray. Somehow it goes over the disciples' heads. They still don't understand. When, when he says to Judas, go and do as you will, and he leaves, they still think he's going to go get money to provide food or to, to give it away to the poor. Like, he's super deceptive. They have no idea what's going on with Judas. And they still don't understand, even though Jesus has said, the one that I do this act towards is the one who will betray me. And they're like, but you just did an act of love towards Judas. Why would you love the betrayer? And so that's baked into this text. There's this offer of grace and relational connection and a relational offer to Judas even in the midst of his rejection. And ultimately, at the end of the day, Judas rejects Jesus. He betrays him. He leaves the community. He doesn't receive Jesus's love. He received the morsel, right? So there's, again, there's this difference between the physical act and the internal surrender He doesn't receive Jesus' love deeply and intimately and internally, and he doesn't reflect his love, and then he leaves the community. So here's the big takeaway from Judas. Judas falls victim to the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the categories that we see in the scriptures, those who are deceived, those who, who, who aren't believers. They're victims to the world, their own flesh, and the devil. So he falls victim to that. He doesn't receive Jesus' love or reflect his love or remain with his people. Judas wasn't betraying a concept about salvation. He was betraying a person, the person of salvation. There's this fascinating thing. John, as a story writer, beautiful story writer, verse 30, he says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he went immediately out and it was night. John, throughout the gospel, he has given us pictures of light and dark, light and dark, light and dark. And he gives us this imagery of Judas rejecting Jesus and walking out into the dark instead of staying with the light. Let's see this real quickly. I want to look at a couple of verses to just kind of put all of John in context. Look at John chapter 1. A couple pages to your left. John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Judas walks out into the night. Verses 9 through 12. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. There's this rejection. Judas, being a Jew, rejecting Jesus. It says, but to all who did receive him, like the other disciples, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look at John chapter 3, 
verse 16 through 21, one page over. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light came into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See this characteristic of Judas? I love money. I love control. I want my stuff. I want my way. I love the dark. I love the dark. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come to the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Look at John chapter 8, verse 12. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, Jesus has already been teaching all this stuff. I'm the light. Stay with me. Remain with me. Be with me. Judas walks out into the night. John is picking up on this as a master storyteller, communicating to the disciples that the one who leaves and walks into the dark proves that they were never truly among us. They may have been in our presence, but they never truly received the love of God, reflected his love, and they don't remain with his people. And then one more, look at John chapter 12, verse 35 through 36. John 12, 35 through 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And it's poetic imagery and storytelling where John records for us to read thousands of years later that Judas walked out into the dark night, leaving the community, rejecting God's love. And so that's the big idea from Judas. He doesn't receive Jesus' love. He doesn't reflect his love or remain with his love. Now the other disciples... The other disciples, we, we, we see what's going on with them. I already looked at John chapter 6, and so we saw Peter's response there, right? Where else would we go? Where else would we go? You have the words of life. There's this attitude and action of remaining, even with, with questions, right? What we see in the other disciples is this crazy, like, ability to believe and doubt. We see this in John 13, right? So go back to John 13, and, and as we think about these other disciples here, they're like Peter in verses 6 through 11, he's struggling to receive God's love in Jesus. As Jesus wants to wash his feet, his knee-jerk reaction is to reject Jesus' act of service, because at heart we're all moralists and legalists. It's like, no, I gotta clean myself. That's, right? We wanna earn God's favor and approval by our performance, that's our fleshly reaction to grace, undeserved favor, no, 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 let me earn it, let me deserve it. And so that, that's his heart reaction, is to, to reject Jesus' act of love, and yet he remains, the other disciples, they remain, they stay with Jesus. 
And so here's the big idea from the other disciples that we see is that the other disciples, they're a mixed bag of belief and doubt. And we see this all through the scriptures, even post-Pentecost when they receive the Holy Spirit. They're still fighting with one another. They're still dividing over things. They're still arguing over how church should be done. So they're a mixed bag of belief, belief and doubt. The other disciples, they had zealous and instant belief mixed with reluctant and delayed obedience. But in the midst of it, they received Jesus' love, they reflect his love, and they remain with his people. That's the key. Community, Jesus' community, is clarified over time. You know if you are truly a disciple of Jesus, if you continue to receive his love, if you continue to grow in reflecting his love, and if you remain with his people. And by remaining with his people, I don't mean that you can't ever find a different church. This isn't, again, this isn't like a cultish way of saying, like, don't you ever, don't you dare leave Park Community Church. It's saying the people of God are so important for the people of God. You need community. You need a community of people who are receiving the love of Jesus consistently and together, who are reflecting the love of Jesus consistently and together. And you need to remain with them, whether that's in a small group, whether that's a house church, whether that's a different church. Find God's people and be with God's people. That's how we remain. That's how we prove that our faith is genuine and true, by staying with God's people over time. And and then lastly, I just want to talk about communion for a quick second because this is a communion scene. I think it's fascinating that Jesus' last night on earth, he sat with his disciples. He had a long, lingering, intimate meal with his disciples. He served his disciples, one of them a betrayer. And so when we take communion, it's actually a reminder of this scene where Jesus was relationally with his people. And communion, it is a way that we remember Jesus' love, right? The elements, the bread, it symbolizes and reminds us of Jesus' body. Jesus himself said, this is my body given for you. That's what the bread is for. It's to remind us of his body given for us on the cross. And he says, this cup This cup is to remind you of the shedding of my blood for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a reminder for us of God's love pointed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we receive that love. It's also an identifier for us with God's people. Like, historically, throughout church history, communion is one of the ways that we identify who's in and who's out. Baptism and communion are the two main ways Who's in and who's out? Now, again, we don't want to be a religious institution that gets too concerned about trying to figure out who's in and who's out because the only way that we can know who's in and who's out, the only way that we can know that our salvation is genuine and true is if we continue, if we remain, if we persevere in his love, reflecting his love and remaining with his people. That's it. And so anytime we take communion, like... Who knows? You might take communion with somebody who a year from now decides they want to throw in the towel and give up on this whole thing. They don't believe anymore. A year from now, that might be you. Like if you start to reject God's love, you start to reflect his love, and then you pull away from his people, you might be proving that you don't belong. But we need to be careful. And so it's, it's here that churches can get into some wonky places. There's two common practices throughout the centuries. There's closed communion, 
and there's open communion. Closed communion is where you have to be a member of a church, you have to be a member of a denomination, you have to somehow, through some church hierarchy, prove that at least on paper, you're a follower of Jesus, and then you're welcome to take communion. That's why at some churches, some environments, you're not allowed to take communion. Open communion is just open to anyone who professes to be a believer. Now, I don't want to demonize these two against each other and say one is right and one is wrong. Open communion is what we practice at Park Community Church. I see some merit to closed communion. I understand it. From a very practical standpoint, I understand it. But we practice open communion here at Park for a couple reasons. One is in this text we see that Jesus models serving communion to Judas, who's a betrayer. And just showing us that a community of love is a community of people trying to do life together and point each other to Jesus. And over time, that community will be clarified. But it's not the hierarchy of the church's job to figure out who's in and who's out. It's not my job to figure out if your salvation is genuine and true. It's not your job to figure out if my salvation is genuine and true. It's our job to do life together, looking to Jesus and to let Jesus sift the sheep from the goats. And so that's one of the reasons that we practice open communion. Another reason is in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Flip there and look at that with me really quickly. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, and this text is about the Lord's Supper, and there's a lot going on here that we don't have time to get into this morning. But this text is often used as to why we should do closed communion. It, and I think it actually supports open communion. Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on who? On themselves. Like Judas. He took the morsel that Jesus gave him, and he ate and drank judgment on himself as he walked out into the dark night. Sometimes churches practice closed communion because we think it's the church's leadership to, to try and figure out who's in and who's out, and then we don't want to be judged as a church for like serving communion improperly. But here, in the scriptures, the offense is actually on the person who eats. And, and so I'm like, that seems like the communion table is open to any, and if there's a non-believer taking communion that judgment lays on them, not on me, not on the church. And so that's a practical reason that we take, that we do open communion here. And then lastly, again, it's just not possibly our job to know who is genuinely receiving God's love in any moment. Who is reflecting his love and who is remaining and will remain with his people. Jesus seems to invite a messy group of people, a mixed bag of people with belief and doubt, with woundings and fears, with zeal and apathy to the table and to trust his grace to work itself out in us over time for his glory, for our good, and the advancement of his gospel. So I'm going to pray, and then I want to invite you to the table once again this morning as a way to remember Jesus' love and to receive it. And then as a way for you to identify yourself 
with the people of God as a way of remaining with him, of running this race of life together with Jesus at the helm. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you and we're grateful for you. Lord, I pray this morning as we come to the table that it would be a very simple act and way for us to receive your love and grace. Lord, I pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to reflect your love to one another. And then, Lord, I, I ask that you would keep us and hold us, that we would remain in community with your people for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.